We're pleased to announce the first coach educational workshop for 2020, which is happening on April 18th in Edinburgh. This workshop will be exploring the use of parkour for sport coaches, as well as exploring the benefits and application of parkour as a donor sport in your specific context. This should be a fantastic event, but places are limited to just 16. So tickets are £25. You can find the link for these by searching for parkour for sport coaches on the Eventbrite website or heading to www.athleticevolution.co.uk. Okay, so today I'm speaking to Dave Hembra, who is the lead strength and conditioning coach and sports science officer at Sheffield Hallam Uni, the head coach of Hallam Barbell Club, as well as a coach educator for British weightlifting. So welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hi, thanks for uh, reaching out and inviting me to speak to you. I'm looking forward to having a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who aren't familiar with yourself, can you give us a bit of an overview of, I guess, your own kind of athletic background as well as how you've kind of ended up in the roles that you're currently in? So I turned 40 last year, so I'm uh, officially middle-aged, although I hope to live for many more years than, than the ripe old age of 80. And, um, you know, who I am now and what I do sort of relates to my athletic background and the way I got involved in sport and physical training. Um, but as we get into our conversation, we'll, we'll look at how there's been different um, versions of me as a professional and me as an exerciser. Um, but... Right from the start, I was always very um, busy as a kid. My parents took me to gymnastics, swimming, um, and athletics as a uh, as a way of wearing me out. Uh, and so, I always did sort of multi sports as a as a young boy, and found my feet with uh, rugby, particularly. Um, played a reasonable level of rugby, um, did some martial arts, uh, and lifted some weights. Started training in the gym with a couple of friends at the age of 13, 14 very quickly uh, found that to be something that I really enjoyed back in the day of uh, bodybuilding magazines uh, wandering around school often having uh, a magazine with someone wearing a, a brightly colored pair of posing pants uh, on the front <laughs> cover of it tucked under my arm which uh, I, I didn't see strange at the time looking back I think it's <laughs> a bit bizarre um, the most recent episode of flex or muscle development what have you um, so yeah I started lifting weights at the age of 13 uh, came on to university in Sheffield Hallam. That's what brought me to Sheffield and, and, and Sheffield Hallam Uni uh, when I was 18 um, and, and played social rugby, did some martial arts and um, ended up working in the gym because it turned out I was stronger already than most of the rugby players who were already at university. Uh, so that's a, a bit of my sort of background in terms of um, sport. Um, in my younger years, uh, further down the road, I did take up Olympic weightlifting, although I didn't have many competitive outings and I was never particularly great lifter um, or was more of a coach. So that's a bit of my sort of physical background and how I got into sport and strength and conditioning. Mm, so pretty good, uh, pretty good sampling years, I guess, by the sounds of it with martial arts and gymnastics and, and rugby and a, a wide variety of things in terms of your childhood. Yeah, very much. Um, quite diverse. I was not particularly good at any of those, you know, to, to be clear. Um, I never had the, 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 the attention to detail of the patients, um, but certainly had a, a variety of experiences and exposures to different environments, different sports, different coaching. Mm. So what about your kind of coaching background? So talk us through some of the different roles that you've held and how that's kind of evolved over the years. Absolutely. I, um, 
I, I say that I used to be a strength and conditioning coach that did a little bit of weightlifting. And then I became a weightlifting coach that did a little bit of strength and conditioning. And, and now I don't really know what I am. I'm, I'm a coach <laughs> with a social cause and a, and a cause perhaps wider than sport and performance. Um, but I preferred earlier to come into university and go into the weight room with, with the, the rugby team. And I've been training for a number of years and being coached and being in a good lifting environment and, and, and no one else in the squad had. So I very quickly and naturally sort of stepped into the role of showing others how to do all the things I'd learned from, uh, from Flex magazine um, and the, the times in physique fitness that the gym I trained in as a, as a young man in, in Ilfracombe in North Devon. And so that's really where my sort of coaching journey started and working in gyms, working in um, leisure facilities, um, lifeguarding and, and being a sort of gym attendant and that was the start of coaching. This was before the origins of the UKCA, before the, the title of strength and conditioning coach um, was really a thing. Uh, but I very quickly just found that I enjoyed sharing some knowledge and helping people, um, helping them understand how to work out. Uh, and I was always a stickler for, for technique and um, was quick to call people out or to, to help them improve their technique. And so as a coach in the early, early days, that's, that's how that started. Um, the, the, the development of that is as the UKCA was founded. Um, the internet was founded as well. I remember the early <laughs> days of the internet, rumors about the UKCA and every now and again sort of searching for different terms um, on uh, the, whatever it was, Vista or Yahoo, um, Ask Jeeves maybe. Um, and so yeah, the UKCA sort of came about. I was at uh, a conference, the first ever conference before it was officially launched it was in uh, Largs in Scotland mm, um, good venue I've been there several times myself <laughs> yeah sure you're up that way aren't you and uh, yeah, there was only 50 or 60 people and I was really fortunate to um, be given some budget from work and be sent on a rather long train journey um, and, and that was my sort of initiation and the induction really into the world of strength and conditioning we had Megan Mike Stone there we had Clive Brewer um, we had Ian Jeffries uh, Dave Collins was there yeah um, a whole load of people who were really important in the origins of the UKCA and, and I was sort of privy to that conversation um, and uh, it was really where I sort of understood what strength and conditioning was and um, how, it, how it related to what I've been doing in the university and the gyms in Sheffield. Um, so that's really sort of the origins of me becoming a strength and conditioning coach. Um, yeah, looking back I was always sort of just like helping people really which I think is the, the main tenant of being a good coach. Mm. So you've obviously already mentioned uh, Flex and Muscle Magazine. So are there any other particular influences you had in your early kind of, I guess, training, but also your early career? In terms of influences, obviously those experiences in sport, um, learning to, to lift and get strong, having time under a barbell was important. Um, cutting my teeth within um, within the gym environment. Uh, there was a program called SAQ, which some people will remember, Speed, Agility and Quickness. Mm -hmm. And that really opened my eyes to a whole load of stuff. And, and that's sort of poo-pooed now. And they, they, they sold themselves down the river with a really heavy um, commercial model of selling courses and, and trying to trademark equipment that was probably not appropriate trademarkable. Um, but they opened my eyes to athletic training as well. And so that's you know, where they brought in ladders and hurdles and agility drills, most of which isn't really sort of viewed on favorably in a lot of circles. But... It was the first time I was introduced to a dynamic warm-up um, and showed how to train 
um, athletes in, a, in an athletic manner. Uh, and I remember going on a couple of uh, speed agility quickness courses and coming back with this sort of burning desire to, to share what I'd learned, um, which is a really good way of consolidating learning. And so just getting whoever I could get my hands on to put through ladder drills, hurdle drills, um, trying to figure out how to do speed and agility training, uh, change of direction, what have you. I actually wrote a proposal off the back of that to Sheffield Hallam University's director of sport. Um, uh, just, you know, I don't know, I had this sort of concept and this idea and I pretty much pitched the first athletic training program for you know, elite or focus teams in, um, in the university. And it was just a, a quick sort of you know, two-sided um, proposal that I would take under my wing all the main sports at Sheffield Hallam. And that was basketball, badminton, hockey, um, rugby union, I think, um, sort of several teams. And he pulled a budget together and he said, yeah, do that, Dave. You know, take them in the gym, spend some time on court, pitch of the field with them, get to know them and get to know the coaches. This was just after I finished my degree. And um, not only did he say do that and put a fair allocation of hours to it, the pay was really good as well. And so really quickly, I just had this um, playground where I had, let's be honest, university athletes that, that weren't particularly great um, physically or necessarily interested in what I had to share with them. Um, but, but I had this enthusiasm and, uh, and I also had a really good wage from it, um, which wasn't what I was in it for, but it was a nice bonus. Um, and so I remember those days really favorably, you know, that's perhaps not influences directly, but certainly important experiences. Um, firstly, to have an idea, to make a proposal, to sell it in a way which was, was well received. Um, and then to drop myself in the thick of it, uh, in, a, in a learning environment, delivering to audiences, that weren't necessarily interested in what I had to say. Uh, and as coaches, I think learning to sell your product and engage an audience and build rapport was really important too. And so those are some other experiences um, that have sort of you know, built me up and given me a coaching repertoire. Hmm. So do you have a, I know you've kind of mentioned already about a bit of a, a social kind of, I guess, mission behind what you're doing now, but do you have a kind of particular philosophy that you try to follow in your own coaching or in the programs perhaps that you deliver, or is there a kind of common theme in the, in the way you operate from a philosophy perspective? Yeah. Um, your coaching philosophy is a, an interesting thing and it's something that's hotly sort of talked about and introduced and people are encouraged to develop the philosophy. But I think what's really important with, with that is that you, know, you take time and, and you start to understand yourself and understand your skills and your attributes, your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, and then you, you form your philosophy and your approach around your character and around your strengths and, and around your core values too. Um, so I'm a very social person. I'm, I'm not massively competitive. Um, I've had some great experiences in elite sport, um, but, but on reflection, that they were, they were nice experiences and sort of career highlights for, for many people, but I, I found them somewhat unsatisfying. Um, like a nice holiday that you go on, have a great experience, good to you know, put on Twitter and, and Facebook and take, take photos of. Um, but two, three weeks later from the holiday, the tans fade and you're knackered back, back at work. <laughs> nice experience. And the truth is, you know, the current thrust of elite sports really, really tough. And mm. um, in contracts, managing characters, coaches, um, the pressure for um, success and then continued funding uh, was really difficult. Um, 
And so as I've sort of matured and as I've developed as a coach, it's made me realize that you know, my philosophy is about people. Um, it's about the environment. It's about culture um, and being supportive and caring in, in, in my nature. Uh, and that's very much a, a tenant of what I do now and the coaching that I deliver, the programs I run and the people I develop. That I develop. Um, so I don't have a, a philosophy um, written out per se, but I did go on a workshop a couple of years ago where we wrote a purpose statement. Um, and you know, that, that sort of feeds into why you coach. Um, but, but I've got a purpose statement and, and I'm happy to read that to you. Um, mm. But it's very personal. So uh, I'm glad it's just you and me sharing this. <laughs> so my purpose statement, I wrote this a couple of years ago, is to find happiness and contentment for myself, my family and those around me as best as I can through being positive, future focused, supportive, caring and compassionate and by making a difference through action. So I'll break that down a little bit. Um, so my, my purpose is, as a person, not just as a coach, you know, to find happiness and contentment. And that's for myself, my family, and those around me. And that, that's a, a core philosophy of people I coach and the coaches I develop and people I work with. I want them to be happy and contented. And that's not just with the, the physical attributes or the sport and performance it's with the experiences they have and the life that they have and so that sounds pretty deep then doesn't it but uh, mm. it's really important things that, that the people around you should be um, developed and their lives enriched by the interactions they have um, in the next section I talk about being positive and future focused supportive caring and compassionate we hear so many people around us or there's so many people on Twitter sphere who are just negative and really caught up in the, the bullshit of the past and, and BMW drivers that are calling bitching, moaning and whining and just complaining. <laughs> and you come across these people and they're, they're like a magnet to other similar people and, and you just get caught in this bullshit vacuum of, of bitterness and resentment and I've really sort of observed this at times and been aware that it's, it doesn't even do anything worthwhile. It's two people moaning about a similar thing or different things. Mm actually resolving a situation or, or, or dealing with the cause of the problem uh, or moving it forward it's just moaning and, and it makes nothing better other than the fact that you've, you've dumped your complaint of whatever the situation is on someone else um, so being positive and future focused and supportive and caring and compassionate um, those are important values to me and then finally making a difference through action um, action is really important and people are um, often quite passive or it's easy to have lots of conversations and meetings about what you intend to do or what we should do or where things should go or how things should be different and I'm, I'm really keen in the way I work um, to be a man of action and say right what are we going to do when are we going to do it Let, let's do it now let's do it soon you know and so any conversation I have about doing something I'll always try and put the date and you know commit to it you know and if that's you know we're going to train or we're gonna write a plan we're going to develop a document, I'll, I'll try and put a timeline on it and move fairly quickly. Um, hmm. that, that's a purpose statement and it reflects perhaps my values and some of my philosophical approaches um, as a person as much as as a coach. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess particularly picking up on that, that last piece in terms of action and being action focused kind of leads nicely into the next kind of bit that we wanted to talk about in terms of, I guess, the actions you've taken of starting different things and different projects or different kind of, uh, interventions both within the university sector and kind of I guess for the wider 
community. So can you talk us through, I know there's been a fair variety of different things you've been involved in. Yeah, I, um, I heard a phrase a few years ago uh, called happenstance. I don't know whether that's something you're, you're familiar with. Have you heard of mm -hmm. happenstance? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that, um, I don't know, was it Bill Gates or um, the Apple guy? What was he called? Steve um, Jobs. Steve Jobs, yeah, used in a, uh, in a in a college sort of commencement speech. And it was the fact you can't join up the dots in advance. And so it's only now that we sort of look back and the things we've done, the actions we've taken, and the the, the sort of difficulties or challenges you've, you've taken head on, but then create opportunities and open doors. Opportunities and, and doors that you didn't necessarily know uh, existed. So it's quite nice where, where I am now. 40 years old, middle age. Um, I, I really like the, the the symmetry from not just being middle aged, but looking back from where where I was when I was 30 to where I'm now, and where I'd like to be when I'm 50, which is proper old. Um, <laughs> the way that things have sort of accelerated and developed, um, and that really excites me. You know, being positive, future focus for me, and the things that I've achieved and the things I've done in the last 10 years, but what I want to do next and, and where things are going. And so I mentioned earlier that I did a lot of strength and conditioning and I was very fortunate to have some international experiences. Um, one of the teams that I coached at the university with that proposal I talked about was the, the Sheffield Hallam volleyball team. And um, we were very good at volleyball because um, the England juniors coach was also the, the university coach and the Sheffield city coach. And um, it, it meant that pretty much all the England juniors came to Sheffield Hallam as a university. So the university team I was coaching was pretty much the, the England sort of development squad. And I followed them about. I went to competitions. I went to England training camps. Um, you know, my first experience of going to a national camp was sleeping in a foam mattress in a sleeping bag that I had to take in a squash court, um, which was leaking. Uh, and you, think, you think you've achieved success. and you've The glamour. Wet squash court, freezing cold. Um, but I went on with that volleyball team. We kept winning the, 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 the box and national championships, boosters as they were then. And we, we competed in Europe at the USUS, so University uh, Sports Association. And so when I was in my early 20s, um, a number of summers consecutively, I went to a European multi-sport game supporting the volleyball team. And I was doing some massage and sport therapy. I was playing a team manager role, um, helping just sort of hold things together and I was doing some physical prep so spinning multiple plates wearing multiple hats and uh, they were great experiences and I was really connected to the guys and the team um, what I didn't know that, that further down the line you know from whenever that was 2004 or 2005 that eight years later I'd be coaching the women's GB volleyball team at the London Olympics you know, uh, home games contributing and a number of ways to, to manage and support in the physical preparation um, of a team of volleyball players at a multi-sport games. Um, and so that, that, that sort of trajectory was a really nice happenstance. Um, other achievements in around performance sport, you know, I went on from the, the Olympics to, to work in professional boxing. Um, we set up boxing science at Sheffield Hallam, which Danny Wilson and Alan Run Ruddock do a great job leading and delivering now. And I went on to the Glasgow Games, so not too far away from you, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, in England, table tennis, British diving, um, and we won a load of medals. And so then I was at multi-sport game, 
uh, winning medals in, in both diving and, and table tennis. And a great experience there was we, um, we we filled the podium and the mixed the mixed doubles or the mixed um, yeah the mixed doubles we, we we won gold silver and bronze and so we had six athletes on the podium, um, which is pretty pretty incredible. Uh, so I had some lovely experiences in performance sport. Um, to write home and send those postcards or the, the social media posts about um, and the sort of things that sort of many of your listeners and certainly the, the developing S&C coaches and the guys at university programs, that's their aspirations and their interests for the future. But I will say to them, it's, it's really tough. It's a tough landscape. It's not always well paid. It's not always consistent with the work. And, and it's really important. It's, you, you commit to that. You know what you're getting into and you also spin other plates and have broader experiences, have other irons and other fires to support yourself personally and financially. Because um, if a contract fails or funding is lost, um, it's important that you know, you've still got enough going on to be able to take care of yourself and, and your family if you have that. Um, and so one of the things I did to, to take care of that is obviously I, I was lucky I was paid as a consultant by Sheffield Hallam, so the contract's always to the Centre of Sport and Exercise Science, um, but I also set up Halababa, which is uh, an Olympic weightlifting club. And I did that predominantly off the back of the UKSCA certification and learning uh, Olympic weightlifting through them. Uh, originally, the EIS guys all went through their accreditation, so the EIS was still fairly new, and um, they bought into the UKSCA at that point in time, uh, and all the EIS S&C coaches went through the accreditation and then became the tutors and the assessors. Uh, I was working and delivering on a project called TAS, the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. And um, TAS was the second cohort to go through the UKCA accreditation. And so I, I did some of the workshops. There was only a couple available back then. And I learned Olympic weightlifting, um, having never done that before. I did, however, a year or so before that blag that I'd done it in an interview for the EIS, ironically, <laughs> for an intern role. And um, I had an interview with a guy called Tommy Yule, who at the time was um, the sort of regional S&C lead. Um, and he, he subsequently moved on to be the performance director of British weightlifting. And, and now he works for UK Athletics. Now, I didn't really pay my, do my due diligence and research. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. So I assume, you know, Tommy was an Olympic medalist in Olympic weightlifting. Um, so not Olympic medalist, a Commonwealth medalist at Manchester. Um, and I, I tried to blag a, a practical coaching assessment uh, in an EIS interview and sort of just get away with um, the fact that I hadn't done the Olympic weightlifting and, and <laughs> I fell short and I didn't get that wrong. Um, so there's a slight irony, irony in, in, in that, that the thing that I fell short on and failed and you know, I was sort of slightly humiliated by um, is actually now something I'm really well known for. And you know, I, I learned to lift, I competed, I developed a club. I, do coach education now and you know I sit on the national board with British weightlifting um, so there's a nice sort of story there of the failure and um, how sometimes that can drive you more than you know than success. Mm. And you've am I right in thinking you started a kind of particular initiative around getting uh, sort of younger members into uh, Sheffield Hallam Barbell? That's right um, I think traditional sport or I think the offer of sport and strength and conditioning coaches who are looking to train people for sport, I think they're very blinkered and we need to look wider and we've got a bigger responsibility and the skills that we have 
and the, the role that we play. Um, I really enjoy transitioning from a strength and conditioning coach to a weightlifting coach because I have personal direct responsibility for the athlete. And, and that was really nice. The first few times I've taken an athlete to competition and, and being sport coach, not the physical prep coach, um, having a nod of another coach saying, hey, your lifter did well. It was great. But what I recognized is actually um, I had responsibilities that I hadn't really been aware of previously as a head coach of a club to um, manage volunteers, to look after memberships, to have governance of the club, to have safeguarding, to have the appropriate licenses and insurances. It, it was like a, a baptism of fire into business and management. Um, and so as I developed the club model and realized the responsibilities I had, I also figured out that the benefits of the situation of being a head coach to a club and coaches on the whole don't have access to funding or much support. But when you run a club, a club sits in a different landscape and there's funding available and support available. I realized I was ticking boxes for British weightlifting because they had a new club and new coaches and developing participants, which is how they're measured by Sport England. I realized I was ticking boxes for the community sports partnership, the CSP, which is the, the local organization responsible for supporting and developing grassroots sports and physical activity and participation. And so I realized I was A, ticking these boxes, but B, they were there to support me and help me. Um, and as I sort of dug into that and looked at my responsibilities as a club coach, uh, I started to look at um, the purpose of sport and the strategic literature and the objectives of sport. And it was much broader than I'd ever previously imagined where sport to me was always about beating an opposition. But if you go now to the Sport England website and look at the strategy, uh, which is due to be refreshed next year, um, it's called Towards an Active Nation. And if you ever listen to Tim Hollingsworth, the CEO of Sport England talk, he doesn't really mention competitive and traditional sport. There's a small talent remit, a small talent transfer remit, but mainly it's to do with marginalized groups and individuals looking at um, young, inactive, sedentary populations, the dropout from physical activity um, between the ages of 16 and 24, uh, particularly women who, who are inactive or are not traditionally engaged with um, the, the standard sporting or physical activity offers. Marginalized communities, people who are um, in socioeconomic difficulties or BMAE audiences who, who seem not to engage in traditional sport, um, spreading all the way through to older adults and we've got a growing older adult population. In fact, by 2040, 20 years away, uh, we're going to have twice the number of older adults, pensioners, as we do now, which is going to cause a lot of challenges in infrastructure, resource, pensions, um, and in the hospitals. And so I, I sort of went down this rabbit hole um, of learning really what um, sport had to offer society and what the strategic principles were behind those, and then also what the funding opportunities were. So within Hallam Barber, we, we do service a weightlifting community and run weightlifting programs for um, young people and adults. But we also have a wider span of what I call a life course offer, where we run different products and programs for different people, all built from good coaching philosophies and principles or the social purpose, um, but just slightly pivoted for a different audience. And so under that life course program, we run physical activity programs for young people. Uh, Hallam Barber Bears is our Olympic weightlifting product. Um, but we also have a strength and fitness club for the young people, um, which does include Olympic weightlifting, but also general um, resistance and physical competency and movement work. And that's our, our, our youth offer. That's the, you know, the 
starting at an early age to, to get fit um, and have a relationship that's positive with, with physical activity. And that's really important because some of the stats that are coming out at the moment uh, are really, really terrible. Um, you know, if you, your listeners are interested, look at the World Health Organization's um, strategy around physical activity. And if you do, you'll, you'll see actually, you know, throughout Europe, that you know, the stats that come out of this document, such as 50% um, of eight-year-olds are overweight and 25% of eight-year-olds are obese. Um, things like six out of 10 adults don't do any physical activity um, or structured sport. Um, Things like one in four people have mental health challenges that can be alleviated through sport and physical activity. So these are the sort of things I picked up and had an ambition as a coach and as a head club coach to try and resolve. And so we've got youth programs. We've got a product called Mindfully Strong, which is integrated mindfulness and physical training. And we deliver that as a positive mental health program. We've got a program called Powerbell, which is specifically for women. We say, Strength training for women, coached by women. No knobheads, no egos, uh, which is often, you know, I think, the ladies' experience of you know, the free weights area in the gym. Um, and then we've got Strength for Life, which are the older adult products. And, and Strength for Life is, is uh, for you know, older adults and, and pensioners, uh, really sort of battling with um, the journey into frailty of old age through sarcopenia, which we know your know, strength training can, can do a lot for. Uh, and last year in November, when the new physical activity guidelines came out, we were um, we, we were on on point because those guidelines start to prioritise um, strength and balance activities for the young and the old. So that's a little sort of walk through journey of how I've linked what we do at Helen Barber, the products and programmes, to um, national strategy and to, to the demand um, of helping people be more physical and, and more active, um, and how we try to go about what we do. Um, some of those plates that I've been spinning that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, so I don't know if there's any points you want to pick up on specifically. I went on yeah, a bit so of a there was, um, there's kind of two points, or two, two reasons particularly, I think that what you're doing really interests me. The first is you, the kind of social element that you picked up on, um, because I, I guess as I've further kind of developed as a coach, I've done similar to what you've done in that I've kind of gone, do you know what? I don't actually care about coaching pro athletes. Um, like uh, for me, it's, it's that youth element and being able to help someone towards what they want to do. Um, but also starting to delve into that wider social things of actually, do you know what? Uh, even if you don't become a professional rugby player, I still want to be able to cross the street, have a conversation, talk about what, you, what you're up to, what are you studying? What you, you know, what's your job? Like I value you as a person. So there's actually that, that whole social aspect of actually what training can do for you outside of the realm of competitive sport that you've kind of touched on but also uh, the kind of long-term element. So we're so obsessed with getting people to that sort of 20 to 35 years of age playing at the highest level they can play. Um, but there's not so much more of this longer, okay, there's something beneficial for your entire life out of doing physical activity, whether that be weightlifting or that be volleyball or whatever it is, both from a bio, you know, a biopsychosocial kind of sphere. So that's what's really piqued my interest about what you're doing is, you've kind of picked up on two areas that I'm really interested in and are running with them together. And it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago, I had Joe Eisenman on the podcast, who's a professor, a researcher, big into kind of long-term athletic development. And we had a kind of, it was, it was funny because we were thinking along similar terms where 
he said, you know, I really have started to rethink the, tong- the term long-term athletic development because as soon as you hear the word athlete, people who aren't involved in sports switch off. And actually, I was completely agreeing. And I was saying, you know, I've, I've started doing that myself, thinking about long-term physical development because then it's for everyone. It's for our five-year-old and our 85-year-old and whether it's recreational or it's competitive or it's not even a sport um, in a you know, typical traditional context. But actually, we need to start having a discussion about long-term physical development from cradle to grave across sporting and non-sporting contexts as we have previously imagined them. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the stuff that uh, Avery Fagerbaum and Greg Myers and Roger Lloyd have sort of you know, promoted and come out with that really feeds in what you talked about there is the recognition that without um, basic physical competencies, without basic strength qualities uh, and some element of motor control and coordination, you, know, you can't have quality movement, and that's quality movement for sport, be that you know, professional or elite, be that recreational, social, or quality movement for life. And you know, as we see, uh, a community of young people, middle-aged people, and elderly people be less and less active and more and more obesogenically genetically you know, disordered. We, we know they've got, got less and less skills and physical qualities to have that quality of life. And so the things you sort of mentioned there, uh, I buy into. Um, absolutely. And I think we as coaches and with the knowledge we've got, whether that's from Flex Muscle Magazine or whether it's from a UKCA accreditation or an ACSM qualification, uh, I think we've got A, uh, responsibilities, but B, opportunities too. Mm. And I think the, the ironic thing in all of this is that if we actually did achieve that in terms of what you're saying of getting more people physically active and achieving those fundamental movement skills and competencies, the byproduct of that is that you have more movers who are capable of playing a sport and performing at a higher level. But the flip side isn't true in that if you just focus on the people at a higher level, there's not that trickle down effect. Um, and yet that's, it always seems to be the performance sport driving the, the conversation from an S and C perspective, rather than what you've been trying to do within the AKSCA of having this more kind of actually, you know, S and C has a purpose outside of sport as well um, for, you know, down your local school, in your local uh, you know, el- you know, elderly um, people's homes, actually there's a place for S&C, not just in your you know, 11 aside football team that we might traditionally have thought of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the things we're talking about um, have traditionally been the areas where aerobic training has you know, been sort of pinned in to be the solution. But you don't get stronger through jogging. In fact, you know, I've heard it said it's the, the quickest non-surgical gender reorientation method available. <laughs> I think I read that same article. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember where it was. I think it was T-Nation. It probably like, it sounds like T-Nation, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and strength training has got such a bad rap, um, and, and, and partly that's down to the industry and you know our, our fixation with with elite and max strength training. Um, but but also it's I think that the previous years, the people who were the managers, the people who did the research, um, like jogging and like cycling, like triathlon, and it got a lot of attention, a lot of limelight, and I think that's changing now. I think strength and conditioning activities are being widely accepted, you know, partly down to CrossFit, partly down to advertisement and media through Adidas, Nike, and, and Reebok, um, and partly down to just a, a sort of shift in society to recognise that, that these methods are uh, accessible and, and of use. And when I say accessible, you know, anyone can do a very low-level strength activity, can't they? 
You know, anyone mm. can pick up a light dumbbell or do you know, a, a regress body weight variation. And you can put that into a, a great framework. So it's either you know, fun or challenging or um, progressive. Um, and that's what you know, I think our industry and our coaches um, should really be tasked with doing. Um, wouldn't it be great if there wasn't a need for walking football in the future? Because mm. people were fit and strong and capable enough to play five aside at whatever age they chose. And where if not, they knew where they should go to get the physical qualities to be able to play the game of football as, as perhaps they you know, like it, it was intended. Nothing against walking football, by the way. I think it's <laughs> a great thing. Yeah, it's funny you should say like, I, I just coming to me now, I remember I've had two experiences that were incredibly challenging and changed my perception of, I guess, S&C or strength training. The first one, I remember I was uh, at a powerlifting competition um, in Bournemouth and I was just there as a spectator. And I remember chatting to this chap and I remember, I remember him to this day, he, he told me he was 83, his name was John. And John like, looked like your typical 83 year old, kind of like shuffling along, looked a little bit unsteady on his feet. And then all of a sudden, John came on the platform and deadlifted 150 kilos. <laughs> and I thought, fair play, John. Like you've, you've kind of, uh, you know, blown my expectations there. And, you know, he was a guy who was loving it, still into his training, talked about you know, how great it was and how it made him feel. The second one was a friend of mine, um, Conrad, uh, it was Sarah Wolsey. He was in an adaptive strongman competition. So, again, I went as a spectator to kind of support him. And I was watching this and I was starting to think, this is, this is really messing with my head because I'm watching these people who fit under this label of disabled and they're doing things that I know the person stood next to me or even me couldn't do. So I've seen guys with cerebral palsy flipping tires, doing um, atlas stones, you know, doing kind of um, the, the kind of a hold with a chain. And I'm thinking, hey, listen, these guys are like under the label of disabled, but they're actually more able than a lot of the people watching this event. So there's these kind of weird experiences that have started to change, I guess, my perspective of where strength training fits. But they, they as you've kind of mentioned previously, we probably play it safe with those populations. And we say, do you know what, John, actually, just do your half hour, 60 RPM on a bike. You know, you don't need to exert yourself. Actually, you know, you know, we don't necessarily have the adaptive equipment for disabled people to, to strength lift. So we'll just, you know, put a hand bike in or do something. So there's, there is definitely a shift away from that traditional aerobic kind of idea, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, you know, the tide is turning and um, the world is turning ahead, but it's on us to continue that momentum and do it in the right way. Um, and our, our coaches, coaches need you know the right skills and the right equipment, the right education, the right support um, to, to do so. Um, and that's part of what my ambition is with Alan Barbell to be a blueprint club model, um, have a diverse offer and, and that healthy, appropriate social um, uh, approach with our programming, uh, and then also through the UKSCA and the special interest group. Um, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, I do want to say you, you touched on something there that one of the Helen Barbell programs that um, I haven't mentioned, uh, I call Enable, and I've started to approach um, learning disability groups, um, special schools for, for people that mainstream school isn't appropriate for um, uh, because of, of learning disabilities. Um, but I've also started approaching schools that are for kids that have been kicked out of school. Um, and these are called um, emotional, social, and behavioural difficulty schools. Uh, it used to be known as the unit, and it, you know, it used to be where I was a lad, naughty boys went. And it, it's now not a recognition these, these are naughty boys, there's, there's girls there too. And these are kids just with difficult upbringings and, and shit going on in their life. And so the traditional offer of normal school doesn't, doesn't work for them. 
um, particularly as we've got this academy model that's very quick to kick kids out. And there's some schools in the Northeast academies that have got a 50% plus exclusion rate because you get three strikes and, and you're in the bin. And literally you're in the bin because your, your, your experience and the expectations that then society has for you and your, your offer back to society can be really reduced because you don't get qualifications, you don't get um, aspirational role models around you. Um, and so I've been into these audiences working with these organizations trying to deliver um, coaching services and a social program to these groups too. And it's some of the best coaching that, that uh, some of the best coaching experiences that I've had. Uh, you know, we, we had a, a group a few, a few months ago where there was a girl and she was in a wheelchair, young girl, um, but she was sort of capable to an extent. And we had everyone doing deadlifts on upturned dumbbells. And um, some of the kids were, were really enjoying it. Um, some of the Down syndromes kids were really getting stuck into it, really strong and enthusiastic, uh, picking up some relatively heavy dumbbells with reasonable technique um, and just beaming smiles. And this little girl in the wheelchair got out of the wheelchair and was tottering about. And I said to her, do you, uh, do you want to do this? And she said, no, I can't do that. And I just touched my nose and looked there. I said, I can't touch my nose. Whilst moving my hand backwards and forwards, clearly touching my nose. And I got a little kettlebell. I upturned it. I put it on a, a block so it was quite high. I just said, you can't pick that up, can you? And she went down. She picked it up. Relatively good lead lift technique, stood up with it, smiled, put it down, picked it up and said, I can't do deadlifts whilst doing a load of deadlifts. And that's great. That's a great experience. You know, the, the things I, I talked about earlier in performance sport, um, go to the Olympics, Commonwealth Games, training, you know, world champion boxers or mountain bike riders. Um, that, that's so fulfilling and rewarding in, in such a different way. Uh, and I'd encourage any of your listeners to get out and, and volunteer or explore, explore these alternative audiences and you know, offer coaching um, to them for, for you know, the pleasure and the development that, that both the participant and the coach will get from that. Mm. So what's been the kind of uptake with your um, strength training programs for the, the elderly populations? Have you found that people are quite open to that idea or are people quite uh, tentative in terms of you know, if they've not been strength training for a long period of time, suddenly taking it up at the age of 60, 70, what's, what's been the response? Um, there's enough of them out there to, to find those that, that want it or love it. Um, we deliver Strength for Life as a collaborative program at Sheffield Hallam University, um, linked link to Hallam Barbell under our club model, um, but also with a couple of external guys that perhaps um, more specifically own, own the title Strength for Life. Um, and these are two guys that met at the university doing a fast track physio course, one of these 18 month master's programs. Uh, and, and one of them has his background as an occupational therapist. So he trained as an OT, he works as an OT, but for whatever reason decided he wanted to shift over to physio. Uh, and then Chris, Chris Hattersley. Um, Chris is an SNC coach. He's um, UKCA accredited and he'd gone through the football program. He'd been the uh, Sheffield Wednesday Academy coach. And, and after doing that for a few years, decided he wanted to. Um, he wanted to be um, a physio. He found it perhaps was a, a career that had uh, more security and perhaps more progression financially. Um, and so these two guys met and they, they developed an interest in training older adults and using strength as a, as a method for um, physical development in chronically ill or diseased populations and you know, looking at rehabilitation um, with strength, proper strength training, but from a physio perspective. 
And so we work with those guys and they do a series of educational workshops. Um, and we take healthcare practitioners, coaches, um, gym instructors, and we do a day or two day course on you know, the variety of applications in clinical settings for, for strength training. Um, and we deliver some courses, uh, 10 week courses, where we take elderly adults in and we train them with good quality, supervised, um, progressive uh, training. And people love it. The, the, the results are, are fantastic. The social sort of component is really important. Um, and, and the scope for um, scaling of that is, is massive. And that's certainly something we're looking to do. We do it in, in a real proper, um, professional and appropriate way. Um, these guys and Tom Ada Wilkinson, one of my colleagues at Howard University, um, they've got a solid background. Um, and we put them through some appropriate screening so it's safe and we know that the prescription is correct and you know, that they, with whatever conditions they might have, we're, we're A aware of or B have got um, GP signatures or um, C perhaps have sent them off for some more specific one-to-one um, -one or small group development work before putting them into the main sessions. Um, but the main sessions we have 15 to sort of 20 elder adults so they come in and they, they learn their programs, they get them with a graft, they have a good crack and enjoy working out together. Um, they have fun, but, but the main thing is they progress, they get stronger. And we see that from week to week. And you know, we, we all know um, that you know, the initial part of getting stronger is the intro and into muscular coordination. And that's something that happens very, very quickly. And how great it is that you're able to give someone a task one week that they find difficult, and two or three weeks later, they find relatively easy, or they can do a lot more of. Um, and, and that's the hook that gets you with strength training, isn't it? You know, that, that beautiful period in time where you, you get better at such a faster rate um, when you first start. And we found that's applicable to older adults as well as you know, younger people and, and kids. And so, yeah, Strength for Life is a great product. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a massive opportunity in a market that's growing and something we should all pay attention to. Hmm. So you obviously mentioned a little bit about the special interest group that you've started with UKSDA looking at a bit more of a, a social impact. So can you discuss a little bit about that and, and I guess where people could pick up a bit more info if they're interested? Yeah, um, I've been really rubbish taking it forwards. Um, and, it, and it's something I, I need to put time and attention into. Um, and in fact, we, we're going to have another special interest group um, meeting the day before the conference this year. And so, so that's the point I'm working towards to um, really sort of raise the profile and, and really develop an approach with it. Um, the guys at the UKCA um, sort of listened to me and I um, sort of talked to them about my interest and what I was doing and, and my belief that SST coaches got a wider in the sport. Um, and, and after banging the drum and sending a few emails, um, Chris Bishop called me up and said, you know, Dave, this is um, something we'd like to take forwards. Some of the board members are skeptical. Some of the um, audience perhaps won't buy in, but it's something that um, we'd like you to drive for us. Um, and so I, I coined the term um, uh, health, well-being, and social change um, as the focus for it. Um, that, that then it covers a few different aspects. Um, you know, we talked a lot about health, about chronic disease. Um, not talked so much about long-term conditions, which is really interesting and exciting research coming out about. Um, quality of life through long-term conditions that won't necessarily get better or, or the ability to um, revert certain diseases 
through through strength training. So, so we have that health component that's really well established. Um, the well-being is a, a really important and growing area, um, and, and quality of life and well-being through through just a good physical um, program and um, appropriate training is you know, something we'll drop into to the mix of this SIG. Um, but then also social change, and social change is the recognition that most people who work out in a gym do so um, for social purposes as well as physical. In fact, the thing that keeps them going back is that they've got a buddy or you know, they feel like they belong. And you know, your listeners that know so, um, self-determination theory, you know, theory of motivation, know, know that that um, social component of motivation is just so important, um, whether that's for, for young, for, for middle-aged or, or elderly adults. Um, so there are some of the ambitions to bring together a framework and recognize that we've got wider remit um, and more opportunities for strength and conditioning coaches. And those opportunities, I think, are really important because there's such a backlash from um, young people who have invested in a degree and come out with uh, a qualification and, and find it hard to get on the career ladder, um, you know, particularly in traditional sport. Uh, and I say to all those guys that, there aren't many jobs in the things I'm talking about now, but there's lots of opportunities. And if you think about it in the right way, if you approach it in the right way, um, you can create opportunities and you can create a job or you can create a business um, and, and you can do so and make good money and make it an important difference. Uh, in terms of social change, I've been doing some work with Street Games. Street Games is a great organization that um, delivered doorstep sport. Um, that they've got significant amount of funding from um, Sport England and they deliver um, social sport um, in the doorsteps and in the postcodes of deprived communities. Uh, and I was at a meeting, uh, an education session a couple of weeks ago um, about youth offending and using sport as a social change vehicle for, for young offenders or for people who are on the cusp of going into um, that sort of a life. And in, in that room, there was um, Clubs in the region represented, um, there was people from youth offending services uh, and there was police officers and we had a day looking at um, the role of sport and looking at the difference sport can make uh, and obviously the coaches in the room sort of know and knew the potential and the impact and the social benefit but um, it was really nice through the day to watch the heads turn of the youth workers, those working with young offenders, uh, the police officers to see that actually there was a social and a, a personal development component to, to sport and physical activity. Um, and very much I see strength training, weightlifting, um, you know, working out in a gym uh, being a core part of that, which uh, we can all capitalize on and do more with. Mm. So, Dave, do you have any advice that you would give to those working with youth athletes specifically, whether it's, I guess, from what you've learned in your vast experience across different sports or different levels or the, I guess, the social versus the kind of professional aims? Is there anything, any kind of nuggets of wisdom that you, you think people would benefit from? Uh, yeah, there's um, you know, a few sort of stories I could tell or points of advice I could give. Um, I'd say first and foremost, as you touched on earlier, it's about that relationship. And the fact that you were able to cross the road and speak to that, that young individual um, and you knew them as a person, you were able to um, relate to them and they were interested in having a conversation with you. That says a lot about you as a coach. Um, and I'd say that's a an important part of coaching and it's a luxury that we have in our profession there's a lot of downtime there's a lot of rest periods um, where you can have meaningful conversations and get to know people and build good relations and other practitioners in you know, psychology or nutrition you know, they don't have that the conversation is 
the, the, the main focus, um, where we've got the luxury of you know two or three minutes between a set where we can just have a bit of a chat, or you know we check in with them at the start of a session, decide on you know what intensities we might want to push them through based on how they're feeling and what's going on in their life, uh, and those conversations are really really uh, important to have. Um, so I really encourage you, your, your listeners and developing coaches to, to place value and importance on those conversations. And, and if it means sacrificing some of the content of sessions to do that. One of the things we try and do in some of our youth programs is include those meaningful conversations at the start and end of our sessions. Um, we have an under 10 session on Saturday morning. And um, the script is it's 9 till 10 on a Saturday morning. And the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes are um, circle time where we, we have conversations and we'll have a theme that we'll try and discuss um, and you know, we might have some fun and play some games, but I'll always try to bring forward some sort of conversation that allows them to share something, an opinion, an experience, um, discuss what something means. So we might talk about what friendship means and what being a good friend looks like. Um, I found actually that they're able to define what a bad friend looks like easier um, so you can side with the negative and they'll dig into that. Um, and these meaningful conversations are things that, you know, coaching young people, I'd really encourage you to have. That it's about the wider conversation and the wider develop of the individual. Um, but within that as well, also recognize that um, they don't always care what you know, and they're not always really interested in some of the finer points. Um, so cut them some slack, let them explore and play. Um, you know, don't be as hot as you might intuitively be maybe on technique or certainly on the, the content of the exercise. And if they're doing something, they're enjoying it and they keep coming back, that's the important thing. Uh, and you might find if you're a bit stricter on technique or a bit stricter on the content or push them a bit harder, they might not enjoy it enough to continue coming. Um, and the best program in the world delivered, you know, with, with that strict sort of approach, um, won't get great results. We're a bit of a loose program that's adaptable. Um, that they buy into that's perhaps got a little less content and a bit more breathing space, a bit more social and fun um, activities um, is something they'll continue to come back to and value. Uh, and that's a place where you can develop your relationships. So that's, um, yeah, so, some, some thoughts on that. I hope that's a uh, useful you know, interest. Yeah, I don't on. know if you've got anything to add on that, Rob. No, mate, spot on. I think yeah, you're absolutely bang on. That's exactly my kind of thought process as well on, on actually getting to know the individual rather than the athlete, because actually that opens the door to so many conversations you probably wouldn't have if all you talked about was sets and reps and match days. Um, and they often can be the ones that, that actually underpin everything you're doing when you're realizing actually that kid's got massive issues at home and that's why they're always late. And if I give him 10 press ups every time he's late, he's gonna stop coming because he's late because his dad's had an argument with his mum. And you know, there's all these kind of things going on that you don't get in the first walk through the door, but as you start to get to know an individual, better you, you kind of create those situations where they can confide in you and you, you start to realize why people are the way they are or you know influential factors that are that are affecting that individual so no, i completely agree do you know, i love people that are late because i'm often late myself um, <laughs> i'm one of those guys um and what i put that down for me is what's in front of me is it's often more important than what's coming up um which sort of ties into some of the philosophies and things i've talked about um but there's this question in my head of, of how late is too late to not turn up. Mm. And yeah, yeah. if someone still turn up and they're late, they made a decision that regardless of walking late, disrupting the session, looking bad, they still want to be there. 
And um, I, I'm always quite caring to people who've turned up a late because they're probably quite worked up. Um, they're probably a bit stressed out. They might not be, but you know, it's okay. You're here now. Take a breath, chill out. You know, have some time and join us when you're ready. You know, that's a very different welcome than you know, where have you been? You're late. We started 10 minutes ago. Right, quick warm up and in. Um, to two, two very different um, experiences. Mm. It reminds me of a great, I think it was a meme that was doing the rounds on Facebook. It was saying, I used to have a coach that used to make me run laps when I was late. The worst part was that the coach was my dad and he was the one that took me to training. So are there any resources that you would point coaches towards? I know we've covered a lot of different topics, but is there anything that you think, hey, if I was going to narrow it down, I'd point you to these, these kind of different things? Yeah, do you know what? I'll, I'll give some advice to, to, to your listeners to um, get into high-level material. And, and by that, I mean look at the organizations that inspire you or govern your sport or, or your activities and read their minutes from their board meetings. Attend the AGMs. Read their strategic documents. Look at the publications that, that outline the purpose and the ambitions um, that, that most good organizations will have that clearly on the website or, or available to, to look at. You know, I mentioned earlier, I was reading the, the World Health Organization, European Physical Activity Strategy and Framework. And I learned a lot from that about what's going on um, in, a, in a European perspective, um, but, but also it tied into what I do in my club model. Um, and and that, that was really good. Um, look at the Sport England strategic documents and look at you know, things like This Girl Can um, because the, the way they present what they do reflects the importance that the world um, at certain levels have for sport and physical training. And if we as coaches can understand that top level thinking and align our strategy ourselves, our language and the coaching offer to those strategies, you'll find those organisations will celebrate you and may provide funding. Um, I think the problem with the world isn't there's not enough knowledge. And so, you know, it's not about learning different set and rep schemes or new exercises. Um, it's about getting out and getting the experience, um, but then directing that experience to towards the, the appropriate directions and opportunities. Um, and so, yeah, dig, dig into websites and resources around strategic organization, structure, purpose. Um, and I think you'll learn a lot. And if coaches do that regularly, I think it will naturally adapt their coaching, their approach aligned with these things that are of top level importance mm. it kind of reminded me of i guess where we started this conversation about your your bmw theme of bitching moaning and whining there's plenty of coaches who will bitch and moan and whine about a, a governing body or a you know something like uk sport but how many of them have actually read the strategy and, and realized why their proposal got knocked back it's because they didn't meet the criteria of the strategy because they haven't bothered to read it but those kind of things you know you're absolutely right i don't the documents that sit there, but how many people have actually read them and understood them and are actually acting on them? Sure. I'll give you a great example of that with British weightlifting. Um, we, we've got uh, a CEO um, and a new board of directors that came in after 2012. We, we didn't hit our medal targets and lost funding. Didn't have um, UK sport funding, but did have Sport England funding. Um, the, the new governance team sort of created a, a modernized version of the organization, took us online put forward um, new membership process, coaching qualifications, managed competitions in a new way. It was met with a lot of resistance. Um, they did a really good job and they got rewarded with additional Sport England funding in the following cycle. Um, 
So we've got something like 1.25 million funding over a four-year cycle. Um, and what most people within the, the weightlifting world don't realize is that funding over four years isn't split evenly. It's front-loaded. Um, and then every year there's a deficit um, which the organization is expected to make commercially. And so you know, every, um, every year of the, the, the four-year process, there's a 100 to 200 gram deficit as the front funding is being front-loaded that the sustainable organization needs to make more money. Um, and so very often, you know, the NGBs are accused of being commercially focused, you know, making money from licenses, from competitions, from um, coaching qualifications. Um, but a sustainable organization needs to have that commercial outlook because if funding dries up, they, they still need that commercial revenue to, to exist. Um, and that's the framework of their funders. And so it's not by choice, it's by necessity. Um, but most people don't, don't recognize that, don't understand in, in year four, they, you know, they get six, 800 grand less than they did in year one. Uh, and that's, that creates a very really different picture, doesn't it? Mm, definitely, definitely. So, Dave, we've obviously been chatting for a little while, and uh, I know you're a, you're a busy man, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. So where can people find out about you and, and what you're doing and the various programs that you've mentioned? So um, Twitter is probably the best space. Um, I'm, I'm relatively busy on Twitter. That's DW Hembro. Um, and uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter, give me a shout, um, ask me some questions or get in touch via that. Um, I've not mentioned Sheffield Hallam much um, as an institute where I work, um, but, but Sheffield Hallam pays my wage and um, the majority of things we've talked about um, are under the umbrella of the, the role I have there as a sports science officer and a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so you yeah, get in touch and you yeah, sign up to a degree or a strength and conditioning coaching masters um, at Sheffield Hallam. Um, and, our coaching program there is, is very applied um, and, and focuses on some of those wider um, aspects that, that we've talked about in this conversation. Um, I'll be at the UKCA conference this year, um, particularly if people are interested in these specific themes, uh, come along and, and join us at the uh, pre-conference special interest group in health, well-being and social change. Well, Dave, it's been brilliant chatting to you, mate, and uh, kind of going through all these different topics. So thanks very much for your time. It's really appreciated take on board the message that, that I'm given and it makes a difference to their lives and the people they end up coaching. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'd love to hear your reviews and comments. So please do leave us a review on your chosen podcast player. If you want to visit us on social media, you can do so using the handle at Athletic Evo UK on Twitter and Instagram or by searching Athletic Evolution on Facebook. You can also visit us at www.athleticevolution.co.uk. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.